Welcome to At Home and Abroad with Harrison Walker. Join us each week as we follow our curiosity, diving deep into the familiar and the foreign. Reach beyond your front door as we uncover new perspectives, explore intriguing ideas, and have real conversations with the best guests. Ready for something different? Let's get started. Trigger warning. The following content includes discussion of genocide, murder, racial discrimination, assault, and rape. If you are the victim of violence and discrimination, we will include resources in our show notes. Please find support. No one should bear suffering alone. First, they came for the socialists, and I did not speak out because I was not a socialist. Then they came for the trade unionists, and I did not speak out because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews, and I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. Then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak for me. These are the moving words of German Lutheran pastor Martin Neimoller, who lived from 1892 to 1984. They are powerful, aren't they? Yeah. Neimoller, who was initially supportive of the Nazi party, later changed his thinking as Hitler gained power. Yeah, he was really outspoken about Hitler's interference with the Protestant church, Mm -hmm. which, of course, Hitler saw as a threat to his authoritarian rule. Because of his position, Neumoller was taken as a political prisoner and placed in prisons and concentration camps from 1937 to 1945. You know, I remember the first time I came across these words of his. It was in a passage that was framed and hanging on the wall of the grad house at Queen's University. Oh, interesting. They are very important words for everyone to hear. They are. And since that moment, you know, the moment I read it, it stayed with me all these years. Mm -hmm. It's treated as a confession of sorts, a public acknowledgement of his responsibility in whatever shape that took in allowing the events of the Holocaust to unfold. Mm -hmm. He wanted others as well to shoulder the responsibility. Yeah, I think these words really underline how powerful our individual decisions and choices really can be. Mm -hmm. Do we help the persecuted, even at the risk of suffering, discrimination, violence, internment, or death ourselves? Well, it is a question all those who have a conscience likely have to ask themselves. Mm -hmm. But who is to say without having lived through an atrocity such as a genocide? Yeah, you really can't know. But genocide, that word, it's dripping with the bloody obliteration of a targeted people. But perhaps many don't know the many forms that a genocide can take. Well, according to the United Nations Office of Genocide Prevention and the Responsibility to Protect... Genocide refers to any of the following five acts conducted with the intent to destroy, in whole or part, a national, ethnical, racial, or religious group. Okay. The perpetrators of genocide cause serious bodily or mental harm to members of the group. They deliberately inflict on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction in whole or in part. They impose measures intended to prevent births within the group or forcibly transferring children of the group to another group. That's absolutely terrible. There is a mental and physical element of genocide as well. It's important to underline that it applies to groups, not members as individuals. So what is the origin of the term genocide? Well, that's a really good question. A Jewish-Polish lawyer by the name of Raphael Lemkin is responsible for coining the term in 1944. 
The term can be broken down into two parts, genos, which is Greek for race or tribe, and side, which is Latin for killing. Okay, well, that's a fairly accurate translation. Mm -hmm. I think my kids could have likely defined it for us. They both took in secondary school a course solely dedicated to genocide, Mm -hmm. which I thought was really important for that age group. And I think it was really enlightening for both of them. Yes, this generation is learning so much more than certainly we did on the topic when we were growing up. Definitely they are. And thank goodness for that. Mm Mm-hmm. I feel it's important to mention before we delve into the episode any further that genocide is a very serious topic. Mm -hmm. It's an important topic. Mm -hmm. When genocides occur, there are often many contributing factors leading up to it. And because of our limited time and scope here on the episode, we can only begin to touch on these highly complicated events. Right. Even though we can't do justice to the topic, and certainly we cannot do justice to the victims and survivors of genocide... We decided that it was critically important to bring this topic into the light and and have a discussion. We did. Our hope is that our listeners find something in our conversation that clarifies or enlightens them, and that you all just might be curious enough to explore the topic further. And reach out to us. Mm -hmm. Start a conversation. For sure. A genocide doesn't just happen, though, does it? No, it doesn't. A genocide is usually, as you said, the result of a myriad of events. Exactly. As noted on the website for the Holocaust Memorial Day Trust, genocide never just happens. There's always a set of circumstances which occur or which are created to build the climate in which genocide can take place. Mm. Gregory H. Stanton, president of Genocide Watch, created a comprehensive set of stages by which a genocide can occur. So stage one is classification. This is the whole us versus them thing. Right. People are divided based on stereotypes and exclusion of people who are thought of as being different. Already at this early stage, there is no tolerance for difference. Right. Okay. That sounds scarily Mm -hmm. familiar with some of the stuff we're seeing these days in North America. You're right. In stage two, symbolism is employed. This is a visual manifestation of hatred. Think of the Star of David that the Nazis forced Jewish people to wear. Mm. It was a visual that clearly marked them as different. Right, okay. So simple, yet frighteningly powerful. Mm-hmm. And stage three? Uh, well, he defines stage three as discrimination. The dominant group denies civil rights or even citizenship to a specific group of people. Take, for example, in 1935, the Nuremberg Laws took German citizenship from Jews. And the result? Many were rendered unable to work certain jobs or to marry non-Jewish Germans. Right. The red flags were waving in a very strong wind at that time. They were. Then what I find sometimes the most sad and traumatic stage is dehumanization. Yeah. It literally robs the targeted group of their humanity or humanness reducing people to vermin or cockroaches like seen in the Rwandan genocide. People at this stage are being treated as subhuman without dignity or rights, he says. And then the next stage, the perpetrators organize. Stanton says genocides are always planned and regimes of hatred train those beneath them to carry out the destruction of a people. Like the Hitler Youth. Exactly. Then there's a polarization of society. This is when the propaganda machine really hits its stride, spreading hate however it can. These days, it's really scary because hate on social media can infiltrate anyone's home, Mm -hmm. anytime, Mm -hmm. anyone's mind. Yeah, and so quickly too. Exactly. Then the genocide is planned. Okay. 
Stage seven is the preparation. Armies and weapons are built up, he says. Often there's a use of a euphemism like the Nazis used. Remember the final solution. Yeah, I actually went to the house where they decided you did. on the final solution. Yeah, outside of Berlin. It was very dark. Wow. Yeah. And then it begins. Ethnicity and religion are used to identify a people and deathless are created. Property is often taken. This stage of persecution involves segregation from society into ghettos, deportation, or starvation. The genocidal massacre begins. This is swiftly followed by his stage nine, which is extermination. The targeted victims are killed by the hateful oppressors in a purposeful or systematic campaign of violence. This just makes me totally nauseous. How can people convince themselves that these are just and right actions? It's the worst aspect of humanity. It is. And what makes it worse? The final stage, post-genocide? Yeah. Stage 10, denial. Oh. Those that were involved in the genocide or later generations deny the existence of any crime. Do you think that's to keep their consciences clear? Or do they really not believe that they have any culpability? And the massacres. Harris, I don't really know. Maybe both. Yeah. It's interesting, though, that it's so integral to a genocide unfolding that Stanton includes it as the final stage. Yeah. It, it does make me ill to know that there are still people who deny the Holocaust occurred. Yeah, it's unbelievable that any genocide could be denied in the face of obvious tragedy, yeah. obvious horror. No matter how much evidence or firsthand testimony from survivors of the Holocaust or even the soldiers who liberated the camps in 1945, there are still people who deny that it ever happened. Yeah, it's just not enough evidence for them. It's madness. But yet it's fact that during World War II, Nazi Germany and its allies systematically murdered 10 million people, including 6 million Jewish people, one and a half million of which were children. There's no question that this was a purposeful extermination of a people. And included among those that were killed were individuals who were LGBTQ+, people with disabilities, Slavs, Roma, and of course, enemies of the state too. If you didn't fit the mold, you weren't allowed to exist. There was an atmosphere of ever-increasing oppression and exclusion until the killing just began to happen openly. People were placed in ghettos and eventually moved on in cattle cars destined for concentration camps. In 1945, the absolute madness and horror of these camps was finally brought to light. Those interned there who managed to stay alive were starving and on the brink of death. Survivors had harrowing experiences to share. Their stories were supported by the dead piled in mass graves, Mm -hmm. as well as the existence of gas chambers and crematoriums. Stripped of their possessions and separated from their families, They may never, ever see any of those people again. In the end, two out of every three Jews in Europe have been murdered. Two out of three. It's it's hard to wrap your brain around that that statistic. It, It takes your breath away. Today, we're on location with Dara Solomon, Executive Director at the Toronto Holocaust Museum in Ontario, Canada. Welcome to At Home and Abroad, Dara. Hello, thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for being here with us. So the Toronto Holocaust Museum is the first dedicated museum of its kind in the city. 
Can you tell us a little bit about the journey from inception to opening your doors to the public just recently? Yes, sure. So we just opened on June 9th to the public after many years of working on this project. We have been around since the 1980s. -hmm. We were founded by Holocaust survivors in the 1980s when they were ready to start sharing their stories, mostly with students, and they needed a space to do that. So in another building on this campus, um, we had a small center, but it was primarily a space, like a theater-like space for survivors to speak with a small collection of artifacts with some text and um, a small exhibit. Um, And for the next, you know, several decades, survivors met with school groups and, um, and and you could book and hear a Holocaust survivor. And we also did Remembrance Day programs um, and um, Holocaust Education Week every year where survivors would would go out into schools and speak as well. Mm -hmm. And when they founded that in 1980s, Four, it was a time of rising anti-Semitism back then. And mm-hmm. it was a time when there was like outright Holocaust denial happening here yeah, in right. Canada, in our own backyards. And they really at that point found their voices because for many years, obviously they were not ready to speak about it. And people weren't really asking for it. They weren't ready to hear it right. within the Jewish community and beyond. But right. With the trial of Ernst Zundel, this um, notorious Mm -hmm. Holocaust denier, Mm -hmm. many of them started to find their voices. And so that's how the center was originally founded. And we're now in 2023 and the youngest survivors are, you know, in their late 80s, Mm -hmm. early 90s. And then those like really have... Um, memories of when they from when they were very young, right? Because yes. they they were quite young when the, when the Holocaust happened, and so we're really approaching the era um, of Holocaust education without survivors. Mm-hmm. So it's a big transition right. moment for mm-hmm. Holocaust institutions around the world who mm-hmm. relied on survivors. So. When we started um, really developing the museum in earnest, which was about five years ago, we were really thinking we're planning for the post-survivor era. Right. And we were also thinking that this museum will remain a place for Holocaust survivor testimony for students after the survivors are gone and for the general public to be able to hear from a survivor, which is so important to hear first-person testimony, um, not only about the tragedies of the Holocaust, like the actual genocide, what they experienced in ghettos and concentration camps and the, and the murder of their families, but also what was life like before the war? Because we're losing that as well, Mm -hmm. of course, with them, with their passing. So Mm -hmm. the museum really has made an effort to tell this complete arc with pre-war Jewish life, Mm -hmm. the rise of fascism and Nazism, the atrocities of the Holocaust, the liberation, which is of course not, a period of celebration, but really this period where they're realizing in many cases that no one is left trying to return home, yeah. realizing there's nothing there. Yeah. And then, you know, languishing in these um, DP camps, displaced persons camps for a couple of years before, you know, countries figuring out where they were going to go, you know, could they go to pre-state Israel? Like where, where were they, where are they going to mm-hmm. go? And so that period in depth and then coming to Canada their arrival, their settlement, the challenges, the successes, rebuilding, starting families. Um, And then it ends actually with like their contributions to Holocaust education and the roles that they played 
in teaching Holocaust to thousands of students through the years and the activism they played in speaking out against other genocides and other mm-hmm. human rights violations and against, um, you know, the discovery of like Nazis living here in our own backyards right. and like what what Canada did and didn't do. And so you see this like full the art. Full, yeah. yeah. And it's that's very unique because that's the entire context. And yeah. I think, you know, even just speaking personally from my own experience in my own education growing up in Toronto, mm-hmm. Canada, it was very much a historical event, yes. the Holocaust. You didn't really understand that that full context of what it was like to grow up mm-hmm. in Europe pre mm-hmm. and then through. And then how do you survive post yeah. without your family, without your friends, being displaced and trying to find your, yeah. your way in yeah. this very, very different world. So that's exceptional. Yeah, we, we've all spent so much time with the community of Holocaust survivors, and we really wanted to, to make sure that we didn't just show that sort of victim um, yeah. narrative, mm-hmm. that we show the full story. I think that's really important. And then for the visitors who, you know, know nothing about Jews, Holocaust, the Jewish community here in Toronto today, we wanted to connect those dots for Mm -hmm, people. And so, and also connect the dots to like the Canadian context. So you'll see throughout the museum, there's these meanwhile in Canada panels that really get at like, well, anti-Semitism wasn't just in Europe. There was anti-Semitism here in Toronto in the 1930s. And we talk about the Christie Pitts riot, for example, which is approaching a 90th year anniversary this Mm -hmm. August. Mm -hmm. Um, what was happening here. We talk about the MS St. Louis with the, the Jews that were trying to come to Canada, but mm-hmm. Canada, Canada denied their entry. Mm-hmm. We then also talk about other minority groups here in Canada, how they were being treated. So we are, we are really thinking like, what is the student of today coming in with and mm-hmm. where can we meet them so that this is a meaningful experience? And they don't walk away thinking like, okay, I learned this history, but I, had, I don't really understand at all why it has anything to do with mm-hmm. me. And, you know, so mm-hmm. connecting those dots for visitors is, was really like... Um, Top, top of mind. mind. Yeah. 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 It, it is. It's, I think it's something we were going to touch yeah, on later, sure. but mm-hmm. how, how to reach the younger generations mm-hmm. and not just let it be a chapter in a history book, but something that's actually going to speak to them yeah. so that they can absorb the benefit of the wisdom and experience of, of the survivors. So yeah. it's, yeah, it's very, very, very important. Mm-hmm. So we did touch on the fact that anti-Semitism has been significantly on the rise here in Canada and and in the West, Mm -hmm. as well as Holocaust deniers. Mm -hmm. So uh, it seems that the opening of this museum, even though you've been, it's been in the works for so long, is very, very timely. We're part of UJA Federation, which is the umbrella organization for the Jewish community. So we're, we're working closely with colleagues who are really um, at the forefront of dealing with like reports from the community around like anti-Semitic incidents Mm -hmm. and, um, and, you know, figuring out how the community is going to respond. And even just in the past four years since this uptick happened, or even, you know, really since the Tree of Life synagogue shooting in, in Pittsburgh, like, you know, we're involved in conversations around the increased security needs of the community yeah. and that sort of thing. So we're right in like the middle of that. And so I think we have real insight into into the community's efforts to counter anti-Semitism. And we all recognize that a Holocaust museum and Holocaust education is a really important tool in mm-hmm. our community's 
efforts to counter anti-Semitism. And there's there's conversations around, like you hear people talking about, um, well, if like the Holocaust is like the bellwether, then like, then how do you make sure that like microaggressions, like so it doesn't get to genocide. Right, like, exactly. How do you make sure that microaggressions, exactly. like people making some offhanded comment yeah. is taken seriously because of course, like it's not the Holocaust, but it's still like important. Absolutely. And so I think we all, we all recognize that this is one tool and it starts with education. Yeah. And it starts with words, and yeah. and we make those connections for young people when they they come into the museum, and then we also you know there's there over the years there's like incidents of anti-Semitism reported at like a school board or in a classroom, and it would come to us and is Holocaust education like the the fix? Like should they come here if that happens? Well, I think other things are at play also. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. sometimes kids are just going to the most extreme example. Um, because there's like you know they'll draw a swastika but do they actually understand like the meaning of it probably not so we can we should of course teach them like the full context so they understand it but other things have to be happening at the same time absolutely it's a one it's one prong and a multi-prong approach yeah i have to say i have to mention my my kids uh attended uh high school in toronto and had the benefit of Holocaust education on an annual basis. Mm -hmm. I believe that all three of them and it was very impactful. Mm -hmm. I think not just on themselves, Mm -hmm. but also on their larger group of friends. It was a very diverse group coming Uh from a variety of cultures and backgrounds and religions. And I think it was something that really, um, just brought them all into a a common understanding, Mm -hmm. uh, which is, is so important. Yeah. So important. We did talk about, uh, the fact that there are fewer Mm -hmm. survivors of the Holocaust today. And as you said, their experience was when they were very, very young, Mm -hmm. um, and they would have different memories than, than Mm -hmm. people, um, you know, in recent decades. So what role does museums like this have in preserving the legacy of these survivors and their experience for our future generations. Sure, so we're really blessed in a way in Holocaust education with how documented the testimonies of survivors are. So of course we all know Steven Spielberg Mm -hmm. um, started the Shoah Foundation in an effort to document every survivor's memory of what happened and to take their testimony in a very intentional way, making, you know, an oral history with in-depth questions and he's gone all over the world to collect testimonies and in addition, the Shoah Foundation now, which is part of USC in California, so mm-hmm. they have a huge, you know, university behind them. Um, they also took existing collections of testimony because we in Toronto we were taking testimony before Spielberg got started. Okay, and um, and digitized them. Okay, so about. Almost 10 years ago, we embarked on the Canadian collection. So a group of Canadian organizations that had testimony from their communities, we created a consortium and worked with the Canadian government on funding and the Shoah Foundation to digitize and completely index them. So they're part of this huge database called Mm -hmm. the Visual History Archive. And you can search by names of towns, camps, um, people's names. So people can do incredible in-depth research Mm -hmm. um, because they've been so well indexed. 
And when you go into the museum, you'll see there are 11 test interactive testimony stations throughout the museum. And they're all question-based because students learn best when it's inquiry method. Right. So even in the mezzanine, in the very first part you um, when you came up, there's a, the first testimony station and it's about Jewish life before the war. So they ask them like, what's your strongest memory from your childhood before the war? Yeah. And you can choose from a number of different survivors. So there is testimony that we took specifically for those kiosks and they're full length. They were shot in 4K and you really feel wow. like they're in front of you. That's amazing. And then there's also the historical collection that's horizontal, but it's been preserved so well that they're crisp and they're clear and they're all captioned. And so and then they're about two and a half minute long or shorter each clip because students have short yes. attention yes. spans. Yes, very short these days. <laughs> yes, yeah. and so you can hear from different survivors and we have a range of experiences. People from different countries in Europe, people that were hiding in the forest, people that were in Auschwitz or were, um, were in a ghetto um, and never went to a camp. Like a range of experiences. People that were, grew up in cities, grew up in rural environments. Yeah. And we can add to it because the the technology is designed so that we can add to it that's incredible and it's um, an incredible learning tool so when you go into the museum you'll see people like hearing firsthand from a survivor throughout the entire experience that's i cannot wait yeah, yeah. yeah. i'm excited i'm really yeah. excited yeah yeah, yeah. well um I'm curious, the Toronto Holocaust Museum, I'm wondering whether it was inspired or informed by any other existing museum. So when you were developing it through the whole process, mm -hmm. were you in collaboration in any way or, you know, was there communication going back and forth? So we, we had intended to travel more, but it was COVID. Yeah, so right. Oh, different examples. Yeah. But we did go to the Human Rights Museum in Winnipeg, which mm -hmm. was relatively new yes. to see how they're dealing with teaching about all different kinds of genocides. And they have a whole floor dedicated to the Holocaust. So that was really informative because yeah. they have a lot of different interactives and um, a lot of different like um, tools to to assess how people are learning throughout oh, the experience good. and what yeah. they think about different oh, things. That's important. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. so that was that was a really important visit and we went as a team with the whole design oh, team working on the working on the museum. And all of us individually have spent time at different right. sites of in course. Europe and um, different museums. The Holocaust and museums in, in Europe, I think, were um, influential in our thinking, mm -hmm. thinking about it and just like new digital technology. So the firm that we worked with on all the interactives is based in the D.C. area. They okay. do museums like a lot in D.C. Well, yes, yeah. 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 Right? Yeah. yeah, and and all over the world. And so we spent a lot of time like looking at other projects that they've done in other see, in other right. museums in yeah. other cities. Yeah. Technology is a game changer. Yes, really for is. education. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So in addition to the testimony kiosk, there's also a tablet experience. So the idea is that and adults can check them out, but they are really designed for the student because. The museum's quite dense, so much content, because we were thinking of all our different audiences. Yeah, like, of course. Mm. The descendants of survivors are going to want to see, like, the specific ghetto and camp, maybe, that their family was mm -hmm. in. Right. Um, and then for a student, it has to be, like, like curated. Like, how, where do they go? So the, mm -hmm. the tablet t leads you to different markers throughout the space, and you hold up the tablet, and it triggers the content, and there's oh, wow. content in the augmented reality space. That's fantastic. Yeah, and That's so right fantastic. now there's 
I think three or four tours that are that you can follow one survivor's experience throughout. Okay. And then we're working on a few more. One that's like um, an experts tour with different historians and people who worked on the project and and survivors and descendants or somebody whose family the an artifact belongs Mm -hmm. to. So you hear firsthand. So that will be more almost like the audio guide that you experience in a museum with like the experts talking to you. And then we have another one on the horizon that's really about the choices people made, right? Because the Holocaust um, didn't happen in a vacuum. Exactly. It was enabled by neighbor turning on neighbor Absolutely. or neighbor rescuing neighbor. And so we want to really look at the choices that people made mm-hmm. in that in that moment. Yeah. yeah. Oh, wow. That's fascinating. Yeah. It is. So it's been 90 years since the beginning of the Holocaust. How do we as a society, I know we talked about um, how the museum conveys the importance of the Holocaust to young people, but how do we as a society do that as well? You so, know, so it's, it's not a big just, question. It's, I yeah. know it is a big, pe- yeah. it is a big question. So what could we be doing more? How can people yeah. be better yeah. allies? Exactly. Yeah. And, and, and looking, looking for those, maybe not looking for them, but acknowledging the microaggressions so that, right. It doesn't expand and explode into and something. And the teaching opportunities as yeah. well. Yeah. 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 Like I think with students, it's like it starts with education. And, mm-hmm. and it could be as simple if we think about like some of the younger audiences, like thinking about empathy, right? And, yeah. and yes. how to treat one another with respect and how to welcome people that are different than you, that mm-hmm. are, you know, culturally different, have different religions. And I think in Canada, we're doing a, a good mm-hmm. job of that. But, you know, if with the hate on the rise, like we could, yeah. you know, there's we still could do more better. work to yeah. do. Mm-hmm. But I think that. That that's a starting point and then for for adults like a lot of the diversity equity inclusion work that's being done especially like post black lives matter there's a lot of like work being done now to make sure like the jewish experience is included in that because yeah. as you know people who are totally integrated into canadian society and are not vis- visible minorities um it's often left out of that curriculum yes. and so there's a real effort to make sure that there's a, a recognition of you know jewish holidays and um mm-hmm. Jewish traditions, and then also the story, you know, narratives like the Holocaust. Or um, in here in Toronto, we like to talk about, you know, the the early settlement of the Jewish community mm-hmm. at first in the ward, and then in Kensington, and like to tell yeah. those stories mm-hmm. so people understand the Jewish history of the city that they live in. Because again, it's it's often like not part of the the it's, dominant narrative. Yeah, yeah it's not, sure. and it, it is integral yes. to the city's history. Yeah. So it's something that everybody should be yeah. aware of and understand. Yeah, and yeah. when people come here from all over the world and make Toronto their home, they, they know now that it's this multicultural city that embraces diversity, and it's important for them to know that it, it wasn't always the case. Right? Yes, exactly. So, it yeah. definitely was not, unfortunately. Yeah. yeah. So, again, we touched on this already a little earlier, but... When somebody has toured the museum, what is the message that you want them going home with? So we really hope that people leave with um, with with more questions than answers, oh, right? Yes. We don't we don't um, want to be this place where okay, I've, I'm done learning now. Right. Yeah. We want people to be curious about learning more about the Holocaust mm-hmm. and to really think about like those choices mm-hmm. that people that mm-hmm. people make, and they, when they go out in the world and see injustices, they mm-hmm. will perhaps stand up against yeah. hate because one thing can lead to another, and of so that's so that they just sort of like pause and think about their own actions and the role they have in making sure there's an equitable and just society for everybody. Yeah. 
Yeah. yeah. And their own choices that yeah. they make exactly. in, in life. Yeah. yeah. And then for the, for the Jewish community, we really hope that they see this space as a place that honors and commemorates mm-hmm. the survivors um, because soon they won't be here. And yeah. we want to make sure this is a place where, where those memories are preserved and that they see it as, as a space where they can come and commemorate, you know, the, their own personal histories too. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you so much for chatting with us today, Dara. It was a pleasure speaking with you, and we can't wait to get in there. If you'd like to learn more about the Toronto Holocaust Museum, you may follow them on Instagram at at the TH Museum. Thank you. Great. Thank you. So clearly, education and prevention are the key walker. Mm -hmm. Sadly, though, genocide was not limited to World War II. Well, believe it or not, there's always some debate as to what constitutes a genocide. Yeah, and words are powerful. I know it's been debated here in Canada. Right. This matter was discussed by the BBC in 2022 in the article, How Do You Define Genocide? Some believe that the only genocide was a Holocaust, but there is the mass murder of the Armenians between 1915 to 1920 by the Ottoman Turks to consider as well as the 1994 killing of the 800,000 Tutsis and moderate Hutus in Rwanda, or the massacre at Srebrenica in 1995. Well, I've always understood all of those events to be genocides. Right. Or what about the Soviet-created famine between 1932 and 33 in Ukraine? Mm-hmm. Or the 1975 East Timor Indonesian invasion? Mm-hmm. And then there's a mass murder in Cambodia at the hands of the Khmer Rouge in the 1970s. Yeah, no shortage of them, sadly, right? <laughs> you know, you might not be aware, but if a group is targeted for political or social status, then they don't fall within the definition of genocide as defined by the UN. Hmm. So this makes it all a bit more complicated. For example, some state that the people who were victimized in Cambodia were targeted for political and social status reasons. I'm not sure why the reason makes any difference at all. I know. The Cambodian genocide is probably one of the earliest examples of these atrocities occurring in our lifetimes. Right, Walker? Yeah, I agree. Because it took place between 1975 and 1979. The Cambodian people were persecuted and killed systematically at the hands of the communist Khmer Rouge led by Pol Pot. And how many Cambodian people lost their lives? Over 2 million Cambodian people were murdered. Ultimately, that was a quarter of the country's population obliterated. Gone. Yeah. And what occurred in the lead up to that genocide in that case? Well, when the Khmer Rouge took power, their mandate was to remove social classes and remove any Western influence that existed in the country. So everything, and I mean absolutely everything, Schools, universities, hospitals, they were all shut down. Minorities like the Chinese, Cham Muslims, and intellectuals were mm-hmm. all targeted. Prisoners were taken to the fields to work, and there they were killed. And from what I read, often they were killed with pickaxes so that the militia could save their bullets. Oh. These people were buried in mass graves. You might have heard of this genocide with reference to the killing fields. Mm-hmm. So this refers to the number of sites that were used for such mass executions and burials of people killed by Pol Pot's Khmer Rouge regime during this time. It's hard to fathom how this can happen, but it does. It does. I mean, they can be triggered by the smallest things. And people could be shot for the smallest things. Like? Crying, laughing. Gosh. Having books. Money. Things that are human. That we all take... For granted, we take just... it for granted. Wearing glasses, yeah. Walker, mm. you're wearing glasses right now. They reached for any excuse. Sickening. Yeah. 
A genocide that reached the public's awareness more recently was the Rwandan genocide in 1994. This took place between April 7th and July 15th. Hutu militias went on a terrifying killing spree targeting the Tutsis as well as moderate Hutu people. This was highlighted in the exceptional but quite disturbing film Hotel Rwanda. So it's my understanding that the seeds which grew into the Rwandan genocide were sown during colonization. Yeah, you've got that right. The tension between the Hutu and the Tutsis developed quite early on. Right. The Belgians had actually categorized the Rwandan people into two distinct groups, Mm -hmm. the Hutu and the Tutsis. And they even gave them identity cards so you knew who was who. Mm -hmm. The Tutsi minority were often given greater opportunities more access to education, and therefore they had better jobs. And so there was this sense that they were treated differently Mm -hmm. and somehow considered to be superior to the Hutu. Disparity and inequality can lead to nothing good. Absolutely. This resulted in tension between the two groups. This tension reached a tipping point. April 6, 1994, a plane carrying the Rwandan president, Juvenal Habiarimana, and Cyprian Nataria Miri of Burundi, both of whom who were Hutus, was shot down. Extremist Hutus blamed the Rwandan Patriotic Front, a group of exiled Tutsis, and they went on the attack. The Rwandan Patriotic Front believed that the Hutus were just using that event as an excuse to launch the genocide of the Tutsi people. So how many people were murdered in Rwanda? Well, in just 100 days, Walker, roughly 800,000 Tutsis and moderate Hutus were murdered by Hutu extremists. 10,000 a day. Wow. Ultimately, 75% of Tutsis were murdered, which was one-tenth of the entire population. They were hunted in their homes, and they were cut down in the streets. Horrific. Yeah. Apparently, most of the people who were killed were murdered at the hands of people that they knew, even friends and people that they were related to. Right. Husbands and wives, I even heard. Yeah. Neighbors turned on neighbors as well. Propaganda reinforced the idea that it was the Hutu duty to eliminate the Tutsis. Uh. This message played constantly on the radio, even directing murdering mobs to the hiding places of Tutsi people. Some firsthand accounts report that Hutus were literally walking down the streets with machetes killing every Tutsi person they could find. And beyond the murder, according to Reuters, 250,000 women and girls were raped, and AIDS patients were used to create rape squads to infect Tutsi women. The result was thousands of victims of rape and children born from rape with HIV AIDS. Rape is often a key feature of genocide. It's just the ultimate subjugation. Speechless. Yeah. More recently, there was the genocide of the Rohingya in Myanmar. In 2017, the Myanmar military targeted the Rohingya Muslims, an ethnic minority, in the northern Rakhine state. The Rohingya were again raped, killed. And as they fled the attack, the military burned their homes and villages behind them. For centuries, the Rohingya people have lived mainly in the Buddhist Myanmar, once known as Burma. They've been subject to violence for decades, Mm -hmm. leading up to this flashpoint in 2017. The Rohingya have been denied citizenship and are considered now the world's largest stateless population. One survivor who escaped with his mother on his back and who was still living in a refugee camp five years later reported, Myanmar authorities brutalized us. They burned down our houses, raped our mothers and sisters, burned our children. We took shelter in Bangladesh to escape that brutality. 
Yeah, I saw photos of that gentleman with the his mother on his back. Oh it God. will stay with me. Um, now, a huge number of people fled to Bangladesh, right? Yeah. According to the USA for United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, more than 700,000 Rohingya wow. fled the country. Half of them, of course, were children. Yeah. A large proportion of those headed to Bangladesh. Others fled to Thailand, India, Indonesia, and Nepal. According to the UNHCR, today there are now 980,000 refugees in neighboring countries. And the World Health Organization estimated that in 2022, there were 925,000 Rohingya living in camps in Bangladesh's Cox Bazar region. And these refugee camps, Walker, they're considered to be the largest in the world, and they are not great places. No, I would encourage people to look online at the photos. Yeah. Of the conditions. To see the reality of the conditions of these camps. Yeah. As you can imagine, they're abysmal. They live tightly together in little shacks, which do not protect them adequately during the monsoon season. Landslides are a real risk. Yeah. Water and sanitation are a problem. So they're hotbeds of diseases like hepatitis, mm-hmm. malaria. So these people, they escape persecution, murder, rape, and then they're left languishing in these camps for years upon years. Mm-hmm. Hungry, stateless, sick. Can't we do better than this? It's estimated that 1.1 million people are displaced within Myanmar itself, too. Mm. Denied citizenship, freedom of movement, without access to food, health care, or education. We often don't think of those displaced after a genocide, do mm-hmm. we? No. There's nothing to go back to, and of course, they are now burdened with exceptional trauma as well. Yeah. It brings to mind the cultural genocide committed against the Indigenous people on our own soil. Yeah. Even Canadians struggle with the term genocide as it applies to the settlers' treatment of First Nations people. They do. But I think it's pretty clear. Over a period of 100 years, 150,000 Indigenous children, First Nations, Inuit, and Métis, were taken from their families and placed in 139 state-sponsored residential schools and some additional unofficial schools across the country. These children were forcibly taken placed in foreign environments, often at a very far distance from their families and communities. They were torn apart from the people that they loved, from the language that they knew, from their culture, with the express purpose of destroying the same culture and language. The Canadian government sponsored the schools, but they were run by religious institutions. The children that attended the schools were forbidden from speaking their own language, and they were immersed in the doctrine of the church. Mm-hmm. And, of course, these vulnerable children were victims of verbal, physical, and sexual abuse. They died of disease and neglect. Children died trying to escape, trying to run away back home to their families, or by committing suicide. And I'm sure some died of broken hearts. I remember seeing a photo of Indigenous families camped just on the periphery of one of these residential schools. I think it was in Manitoba. Yeah, I've seen that as well. And they just wanted to be close to their children. They had no agency, no power to change the situation in the face of this oppressive state. It's one of the most sad, mm-hmm. sad things I've ever seen. And shockingly, the last of these schools was officially closed in the late 1990s. Yeah, most of them, I think, closed in the 70s. But I think yeah. that was the last official closure. Yeah. In the 90s. I know. It's sickening. And in 2008, then Prime Minister Stephen Harper 
made an official apology to the surviving students who experienced life in the residential schools and also to their families. Finally, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission came to the decision in 2015 that cultural genocide of the Indigenous people in Canada occurred as a result of the residential school system. It shocks me, though, that it took so long for our government to publicly recognize this hideous chapter in our collective history. I know. The Canadian Museum of Human Rights states it very clearly. Our country's policy of outlawing language, cultural practices, and political traditions and removing children by force from their families in an attempt to assimilate Indigenous people is an example of genocide. It was a conscious effort to erase a distinct group of people by destroying the essential foundations of their way of life. There's no uncertainty in that statement, is there? Right. But even after the acute violence of a genocide subsides, the victims continue to suffer. Mm -hmm. And this was one aspect of the Toronto Holocaust Museum, which really resonated with me. Yes, me as well. Mm -hmm. Those who were victimized by the Holocaust and survived, they needed to make a whole new life for themselves after the war. And some of these people were just kids who had lost everyone that they had known. They had no home or village to go back to. They had no roots. Seems like an insurmountable feat, especially when you have nothing. I know. Many European Jews also ended up in displaced people camps and ultimately moved around the world in search of a new life. Right. Which cannot be easy. I mean, how do you get a job if you don't speak the language? And how do you take this all on when you're still in the throes of trying to process the trauma you've just experienced? And how do you live with the memory of all of the people that you've lost? For many people, going back home was just too painful. And even talking about their experiences was too much. According to the Montreal Holocaust Museum, some victims choose not to speak about their experiences. They may be trying to avoid reliving those painful events Mm -hmm. and trying to forget the past. But some also want to protect their children and their grandchildren from the horrible realities of war and genocide. And sadly, some are still afraid and they want to avoid retaliation. It's such a heavy burden to bear. It is. Carol A. Kidron, associate professor in the Department of Anthropology at the University of Haifa, Israel, says little is known about trauma survivors, their descendants, and the daily lived presence of the past that they experience. It's generational trauma. Mm -hmm. The children and descendants of genocide survivors share the trauma in a myriad of ways. Yeah. My daughter's best friend, actually, her family survived persecution and war in Sri Lanka. And it may have occurred just prior to her birth, but certainly she was very young when her father disappeared and was tortured. He was rescued, fortunately, but she does remember extreme violence and the terror of that time. And though it was her parents who really experienced it all firsthand, she's inherited that trauma Mm -hmm. and now has a big impact on her life and she's still working through it. So it's a really top of mind area for study and uh, attention now, isn't it, Walker? It is. Mm -hmm. In preparing for this episode, I was reminded of how very easy it is for us personally or our governments to dismiss or overlook those Mm -hmm. early stages and signs and signals, those uncomfortable events that might just pretend a genocide. We don't want to think it can happen, right? So we ignore it. The bystander effect. Yeah. We have a remarkable and unfortunate ability as humans, don't we, to look the other way. Yeah. 
When the seeds of hate are being planted, many of us don't necessarily see or perhaps we choose not to see what has the potential to develop into something even more ugly and unimaginable. Mm -hmm. We may also avoid acknowledging the victims. We push it away if it doesn't affect us. This was so perfectly expressed in Nymoller's passage. Yeah, it was. We know, too, that genocide doesn't just happen. No. There are signs. There are signals. There are occurrences that can happen over a number of years, but it takes just a moment, just a single choice to move from being a bystander to a proactive individual. But according to the United States Holocaust Museum, there is growing argument in support of the idea that the term bystander is becoming obsolete. One is still culpable, an active contributor to genocide, even in an indirect way, if you do nothing. Many people claim that after the war, they weren't involved in contributing to the Holocaust. They weren't responsible for the atrocities, but they were there. They upheld the mandates and the hate of the Nazis. And people did this in so many ways, like Mm -hmm. even just ordinary people. Maybe they acquired Jewish property, Mm -hmm. right? At very low prices, taking advantage of those people's displacement, their murder, and their eradication. And there were those that pushed beyond the fear of retribution and persecution for themselves and their family. There are the people who find the strength to choose to speak for those who have no voice. Mm-hmm. These people made decisions to protect the vulnerable, often strangers at the risk of their own safety. These people serve as examples for us today and future generations. They demonstrate to us how our decisions to take action instead of looking the other way have the potential to save lives. Absolutely. Some of these people I think are known to us, Walker, mm-hmm. but I imagine there's so many that have never been documented in the history books, right? Like unknown heroes. Yeah, in the article, Those Who Dared to Rescue, the number of non-Jews who rescued Jewish people during the Holocaust are described as being the exception rather than the rule, Mm. though. One estimate reported that tens of thousands of Jews were rescued by non-Jews during the Holocaust. That's a small number when you consider the millions that lost their lives. Mm -hmm. They still do deserve recognition, though. Many offered food and supplies to Jewish families, help falsify documents, and help people to escape or hid them in place. It makes me think of Immaculi Ilabagisa, who hid for three months in a Hutu neighbor's tiny bathroom with seven other Tutsis. Three months? Three months. During the, the entire duration of the genocide in a tiny bathroom. If they were discovered, that Hutu family that held them would have been slaughtered, as well as all of the all of the Tutsis themselves. Three months. Well, Charles Carl Lutz is one individual whose actions saved many lives during the Holocaust. He was the Swiss vice consul in Budapest in 1942 and is credited with saving more than 62,000 Hungarian Jews from being deported to concentration camps. Wow, that's a big number. Mm-hmm. According to Smithsonian Magazine, Lutz was able to get the go-ahead to issue emigration papers for 8,000 Jews to Palestine. Mm-hmm. But instead of 8,000 individuals, he went ahead and approved 8,000 families. Amazing. Wow. He also created safe houses for Jews, which were referred to as Swiss annexes, and managed to free individuals from deportation centers and even death marches. Incredible. Yeah. For this reason, he was named an honorary citizen of the state of Israel. 
Lutz's stepdaughter is quoted as saying, the laws of life are stronger than man-made laws. Mm -hmm. My father always considered his time in Budapest and the rescue of innocent Jews as the most important part of his life. This really is an incredible story. Yeah. It reminds me of the story of Raoul Wallenberg. Mm, right. For those of our listeners who don't know who Raoul Wallenberg was, he was an architect and first secretary at the Swedish legation in Budapest in 1944. He worked to protect Jews living in Budapest from being deported to the Auschwitz-Birkenau camp. Wallenberg provided protective passports for many Hungarian Jews and offered safe havens to Jews in more than 30 houses, which were said to be Swedish territory. Mm. According to the Smithsonian, he even managed to stop a train headed to Auschwitz, during which time people were given protective passes and removed from the cattle cars. The number of people he was able to save ranges depending on the source. Right. The number is certainly in the multiples of thousands. Wow. Was he ultimately caught, though? He was. In 1945, the Soviet army arrested and imprisoned him. It is unsure what ultimately happened after that. The Soviet government stated that he had had a heart attack, while others say he was executed. Oh, what a shame. Have you heard of the incredible story of Johann van Hulst? I have. That's one remarkable story. It is. In 1942 and 1943, so in the darkest mm -hmm. depths of the war, van Hulst, who was a teacher, arranged to transport Jewish children hidden in baskets and sacks over a hedge before being transported by bicycle out of wow. Amsterdam. And what about Irina Sendler? She's known as Jolanta who passed away not that long ago in 2008, who was a Polish nurse or social worker, depending on the source, who helped the rescue group called Zagota, who sought to find hiding places for Jews and help them survive while hiding. Hmm. She eventually became the director of Zagota's Department for the Care of Jewish Children and smuggled 2,500 Jewish children out of Warsaw. Wow. She was able to hide children, from what I read, in strollers, ambulances, and suitcases, they were cared for by Polish Catholic families. And she was ultimately caught, though, by the Gestapo, tortured and sentenced to death. But she managed to escape when the guards were bribed. Wow. Mm-hmm. As reported in this article about unsung heroes who helped Europe's Jews escape Nazis in the Independent, she is claimed to have said, Every child saved with my help is the justification of my existence on this earth and not a title to glory. Wow, that is so humbling. Mm -hmm. But you don't really have to have means or be in a position of authority to make a difference. No. I read this story of this man and his family. They lived in a bomb crater, okay. living on lizards, prior to the Khmer Rouge taking control of the country. Right. At that time, in 1975, Pol Pot emptied the cities, and people were dragged off to tiny communes. And they would put one man in charge. And they thought that this particular man, because he was so poor, mm -hmm. that he wouldn't have any designs. So they put him in charge of one of these communes. This farmer, Ban Chuan, in his time as chief, he prevented mass starvation by sneaking his own rations to wow. the people in his care. Something that he could have been executed for, his entire family executed for. And remarkably, only one person died wow. in, his, in his care. It's unbelievable. Isn't that unbelievable? And there are so many tales like this of such heroes in the Rwandan genocide too. Damas Kasimba, who was of mixed Hutu Tutsi ethnicity, but had a Hutu ID card, mm -hmm. and his brother Jean-Francois, they sheltered more than 400 children and adults 
hiding in the attic, the basement, and in the locked rooms of the orphanage that they ran. And these two, they did this at great personal risk to both themselves and everybody that they were protecting in the orphanage. If the militia had found out, they would have all been slaughtered. Other Hutu also hid Tutsi people in holes that they dug in fields on their properties. And when they would cover them with branches and soil, or they also hid them in their own personal homes, as in the story that we talked about in the bathroom. Zura Karuhimbi was one remarkable elderly woman who did just this. Yeah, she is remarkable. She is. She sheltered more than 100 Tutsis in her two-room house. Because she had a reputation for being a witch, the Hutu, they were scared of her. Yeah. They didn't want to cross her. In 2014, she's reported to have said, I remember one Saturday, they came back again. I confronted them as usual, warning them that by killing the refugees in my house, they were digging their own graves. That is a strong woman. Wow. What courage. Mm -hmm. If only more people could choose to stand up earlier against hate. Yeah. To have the courage and open-mindedness to learn about differences instead of reject people because they're different. To recognize small hateful acts and microaggressions and call them out. To stand up and have a voice, be the voice of others, and to get involved before the seeds of genocide are planted. Thank you for joining us at At Home and Abroad with your host, Harrison Walker. If you enjoyed this episode, we would really appreciate it if you would rate and review our show. It helps us grow and expand our reach. Subscribe to follow us each week as we continue the conversation. You can also say hi to us on Instagram at at Harrison Walker. We would love to hear from you.